If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 9. We were in Acts chapter 9 last week. We'll be there this week. And the next time we pick up Acts, we will still be in chapter 9. As we uh, turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may Your Word before us be our rule. May Your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may Your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, um, this is a good time to be going through the book of Acts uh, because we here at Grace and Peace in 2019, as well as every other church that's gathering to worship and to proclaim Christ, is, is part of the ongoing expansion and growth of the church. With Acts in particular, we can look back and see what God has done in Jesus Christ. And we can look ahead and see what God is doing and will do by His Spirit. Acts is unique in that it it orients us uh, to the work of God then and now. Acts really is serving for us like an anchor. It holds us back to what God has done in history. But it's also an engine that it helps move us forward to what God is doing. Acts is the record not only of the expansion of the church, but it's also uh, a record of the gospel exposing hearts, as we saw in the case of Simon the Magician. Now last week when we looked at the first 19 verses, the first 19 and a half verses of Acts, Chapter 9, it was the most famous conversion in church history. Remember, Saul the Pharisee, he went, was on his way to Damascus. Why? To lay hands on people, to bring them back bound to Jerusalem for disposal in one way or another. He, the movement that we saw is he goes from from, uh, wanting to lay hands to being blinded and led by the hand, and then having hands laid on him. Indeed, it was a surprising conversion, as well as a surprising call that God would use this enemy to to not only be a friend of the church, but to be one who proclaims the gospel in particular to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. You heard last week this quote from John Calvin, the great reformer, who says this, God's grace is seen, quote, not only in such a cruel wolf being turned into a sheep, but also in his assuming the character of a shepherd. What we'll see going forward is Saul becomes both the humble recipient of God's unmerited grace and the eager publicist of God's unmerited grace. Now, while while this This um, conversion and call may be surprising. Uh, If you remember, uh, at the end, we really came up with the takeaway from this passage. And that was, do not be surprised. Do not be surprised by the power of God to change you. To change others. I mean, let's be honest. There are people in our families, neighbors of ours friends of ours, co-workers, classmates, that, oh, we want their life to change for their own good. And God has the power to change. But 
not only in looking through the window at others, it's looking in the mirror. Oh God, I believe that you can change even me. Do not be surprised by the power of God to change you, to change others. Do not be surprised as well by the call of God to suffer. Don't be surprised by the call of God to suffer. It's for every Christian, everyone who, who uh, denies himself, takes up his cross and follows Jesus. It's the cross, of course, before the crown. It's suffering that precedes glory. Yes, we follow a a, a risen king. We often see come people of the risen king. But you know who that risen king is? He's also a crucified savior. Now, speaking of famous conversions, Paul's is famous, the most famous probably in scripture. Well, I'm thinking about American church history, American evangelical church history, uh, the early 1970s. I don't know why, but I've been thinking about Watergate lately. Um, just thinking back to the early 70s of uh, President Nixon resigning before he would have been impeached and convicted. Uh, uh, and, 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 and there was a man, uh, many of you may know his name, Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. He was a, a special counsel to President Nixon. He was President Nixon's right-hand man. Well, he died uh, about seven years ago at the age of 80. And I remember reading a number of articles around the time of his death, and, and, and in print, he was described as being an evil genius, a, a Nixon's hatchet man, a hit man, ruthless. Even Michael Cromartie, the vice president of, ethics, of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, said this at the time of Colson's death. He played political hardball for keeps. He was ruthless. He wanted to win at all costs, and he had a reputation as a person who wanted to win at all costs. I think if he's going to be remembered for anything, he's going to be remembered as a person who had a complete turnaround in his life. You see, Charles Colson, during the time of all the swirls of Watergate, he came to faith in Christ. Someone shared the gospel with him, and God changed his heart. And from all outward appearances, he bore the fruit of repentance and faith. He, his life changed. Now, some, some cynics said, oh, yeah, you're coming to Jesus to avoid going to prison. Well, he wanted to be honest. He wanted the truth to come out. He went to prison. He went to federal prison. He, he emerges from that and founds, of all things, prison fellowship ministries. Everybody was thinking Colson's conversion is not real. It's just to get out of being caught. His life's testimony is that his conversion was real and bore fruit. You see, God converts. God calls. And as we will see today, as I believe you can even see in the life of Charles Colson, God keeps God finishes what he begins. God doesn't somehow come near and then walk away. God is, uh, today uh, we're going to consider God's keeping both of his servant Saul and his church. In other words, we're going to look at the preservation of Saul and the church. And you'll notice two main sections, the preservation of Saul and the preservation of the church. And I want to read 
our, our text now as we walk our way through it, but I'd like to read uh, the second half of verse 19 all the way to the, uh, to the end of 31. For some days he, that is Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Samaria, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Well, I want us to look at the preservation of Saul by looking at several tales. Children, not the tale of an animal, but the tale of a, a story. First, a tale of two cities, Damascus and Jerusalem. Verse 19, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And then in verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem. Well, in verse 23, there's a, a trip to Arabia. Uh, he, he goes off uh, and away. And when we were looking at Galatians 1, there was a period of time where Paul said he, he went away. What we believe is happening here is just where Luke just speaks in a, in a line of, um, of uh, him um, going away. Uh, uh, he explains it further in Galatians, this trip to uh, uh, for three years to Arabia. Now, it's a tale of two cities, Damascus and, and Jerusalem, but it's the tale of one man, Saul. It, in verse 21, he, he's Saul. He, he's the same man, but he's different. They are amazed. It's the same personality, as it were, but, but it's reoriented. With the zeal that Paul had to persecute the church, now with the same zeal he wants to proclaim Christ. It's the tale of one man who's on a mission. We look uh, at, back at verse 15, to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. He's converted to faith in Christ. He's commissioned to witness. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's immediate obedience. Um, 
Uh, growing up, uh, I heard that expression, uh, obey right away, all the way, and with a cheerful heart. And here's Paul obeying Jesus right away, all the way. And as we will see throughout his letters, with a cheerful heart. Immediate obedience. Kids, what happens when a baby is born in the delivery room or in the living room or the kitchen or wherever babies are born these days? Um, what, what does that baby do first thing when it gets out into the visible world? Cries, right? Crying is a sign of life, right? The, the doctor or the midwife, the mother, everybody wants to hear the cry, right? Well, here's Saul, born again, born anew, and his cry, his sign of life is to proclaim Christ, to speak of Jesus as being the Son of God and the Christ. That's his message. This one man has a mission, and he's got a message that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the Christ. Remember how Stephen, in his speech before the council, before his death, before his martyrdom, he's, he's proclaiming Christ from the Old Testament scriptures. Paul, or Saul, now sees Jesus in the scriptures of the Old Testament. It's the tale of two cities, the tale of one man. It's the tale of one message, the gospel. Now, as he proclaims this message, notice in verse 23, the Jews plotted to kill him. Their amazement is turning to anger. And in 20, verse 24, uh, there's a watching of him with a hostile observance. They're watching in order to kill him. And then in verse 29, he's now in Jerusalem and the Hellenists, the Greek, uh, the Jews of, of, of uh, Greek heritage are, are seeking to kill him. Why? How would the one, why would the one who wanted to kill Christians now be in the position of, of being on the receiving end of a plot to kill? Why? Well, we know the reason we've been talking about it. It's it's the gospel, the offense of the gospel, the dividing line of the gospel. Why? The gospel exposes the heart. It exposes a soft and repentant heart or it exposes a hard and rebellious heart. George Bernard Shaw said once that the biggest compliment you can pay an author is to burn his books. He also goes on in that view to think, or someone says that the biggest compliment you, you can give to a preacher is to want to silence him. And that's what's happening to Saul. He's found Jesus. Jesus has found him. He's proclaiming the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. And he's being marked out for death. But it's also a tale of one man whom God uses to preserve Saul. Who is that one man? Well, of course... It's Barnabas. You see, God preserved Saul physically through the disciples of Jesus and the brothers. There's one man named here other than Saul. It's the one who preserves Saul spiritually, as it were. God uses Barnabas. You see, the problem, look at verse 26. The problem is that the disciples were all afraid of Saul. Why? They didn't believe the change was real. 
Now place yourself in that position. Think of someone who right now, for lack of a better word, is your enemy. What if they called you up and wanted to get together and said something has changed and they want to be your friend? Would you believe them? I mean, aren't we supposed to be cautious and wise? They are all afraid of Saul, and with good reason. But there's a solution. Barnabas, because Barnabas comes and takes him and brings him. Barnabas lays hands, as it were, on Saul. Barnabas, the name means son of encouragement. Well, let's look at a few things that Barnabas does. Uh, Notice in this account of Barnabas' actions, he believes God. He believes that God can transform an enemy into a friend, an enemy into an ally. And, and, and Barnabas puts himself, not just his property as we read back in chapter 4, at the Lord's disposal. It's one thing to give your property for the work. It's another thing to give yourself to be at the Lord's disposal. We see that that, that Barnabas listens. You see, he has to listen to Saul's story in order to tell Saul's story. How does he know what happened to Saul? He took the time to listen to the story from Saul. He promotes others. Notice that Barnabas is affirming and championing the ministry of others. He rejoices at the success that that. that Saul is having. Again, notice that Saul proclaims Christ boldly in Damascus, boldly in Jerusalem. In other words, he's going to communicate to the other apostles, to the other disciples, Paul is taking a risk. People that risk their lives for the gospel genuinely, generally aren't nominal believers. Indeed, Saul takes a risk. And this risk is not about some kind of personal exploit on Barnabas' behalf, but, but accepting new people and pushing them forward. Somewhere I read this, uh, because Christianity is a religion of love, some of our greatest ventures are ventures of love. And, and you don't see it directly there, but it's there. Barnabas loves this new brother. In Christ, Barnabas wants to promote not Barnabas's ministry, but Saul's ministry. See, Barnabas, in his affirming of, of Saul and promotion of Saul, he's, he's insisting that the power of the gospel be recognized and respected. We see in this text that Saul is a new man. He's a new man with several new aspects of his life. Remember, kids and adults, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. The new has come. Um, All things made new. What is going on in Saul's life? He's got a new reverence for God. Remember, he was in the church, as it were, on his way to do God's will. But he meets Jesus. He's got a new reverence for God. He's got a new relationship with the church. Remember, Ananias has to help him. 
He's got a new relationship with the church and now he's got a new responsibility to the world to witness, to witness Christ. Paul is becoming Christ-centered. He's living and ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's courageous and it's costly. Remember the call and the commission. Uh, You're going to need to suffer on account of my name, he's told. He's a witness, he's going to suffer, and many of those who witness suffer all the way to death. It's interesting, after uh, verse 30, we don't hear of Saul uh, or Paul until Acts 11.25. He goes away and uh, then we'll spend time with Peter and then we'll pick back up with uh, Saul in a few weeks. Well, Luke here wants, to see, wants us to see clearly that God keeps Saul. He rescues him on the road and he preserves him both in, in Damascus and then in Jerusalem. But Luke, I think, wants us to step back and consider as well that God keeps, God preserves not only Saul as an individual, but he preserves his people, the church. And let me read verse 31 again. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here's a summary statement that Luke includes in Acts every now and then so that we can stop and catch our breath and reflect a bit. And indeed, this verse helps us reflect on the Lord's preservation of the church. The church, singular, one organism, a set of local groups in union with one another. Because there's a church, as it were, in Damascus. There's a church in in Jerusalem and a church in between. And there's this this emphasis that, that the church is one. Now, those of you that have been around know that we're in the PCA, and the PCA is not only a confessional denomination in that it... Um, has a written confession of faith. This is what we believe the Bible teaches. But we're also a connectional church. We have informal and formal relationships with one another. Here's the local church, and there's a regional church called the Presbytery, and then there's a national and international church called the General Assembly. And so you can refer to Grace and Peace as a church. You can refer to the Ohio Valley Presbytery as a church. And indeed it is. That's where I'm a member. And you can refer to the General Assembly as a church. And so the church, singular, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up. Now what does the church have? The church has peace. Now is this peace external or internal? I think the context is going to lead it to to be internal peace. Why? Because there's no mention of persecution stopping it's built up how is the church built up it's built up because people build each other up it's all the one another's of scripture it's it's what's happened in this church this past week i cannot tell you how encouraged i am to see the body of christ coming alongside one another and building one another up James Montgomery Boyce, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, says this, 
One of the most delightful things about the Christian life is getting to know the kind of people God saves because they are generally not the kind of people you would expect. Did you hear that? God saves. People don't save themselves. God saved Saul. And Saul is befriended and helped by Ananias and now Barnabas. With pressure from persecution all around, the church in and of itself is at peace. So what does the church have? Peace. What is the church doing? The church is multiplying. It's growing. It's increasing. How? How is that happening? Well, they're walking or living in the fear of the Lord. There's a reverence for the Lord. They're in awe of the Lord. They're obeying the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Some of you may have heard of the book, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Apart from the scriptures, that book has had a significant uh, impact in my life, influence in my life. It helped me see that when I'm afraid of people, God is going to seem really small. But when I have a healthy, right, biblical, Christian fear of the Lord... What can man do to me? What can man say about me? It reminds me of a a fellow PCA pastor once said, when a, a group of us were praying together, he said, what's in the foreground, God or your circumstances? When you look out, do you see God and his glory and his protection and his provision, or do you see your circumstances? And if you see your circumstances first, I guarantee that God is somewhere way off in the distance looking rather small. They're walking in the fear of the Lord. But they're also walking and living in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that just wonderful expression? The comfort of the Holy Spirit. We heard in John, another one is going to be sent, the comforter. They're walking in the fear of the Lord The comfort of the Holy Spirit. The church's progress here is not depending on just the fact that outward circumstances are quiet. But it's depending on its relationship with the Lord. The comfort of the Holy Spirit and the fear of the Lord. Now these are unique ingredients, aren't they? Would anybody around us describe what's happening in a church as... People are walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That should be a description of every church. Despite the presence of persecution and rejection, the church is doing what? It's growing. It's being multiplied. You see, God is committed to the preservation and growth of His church. God preserves His people, His church. Saul and Barnabas um, together demonstrate our identity who we are, and our vocation, what we do. And so let's wrap up with two questions, which our text asks and I believe answers. First, do you know who you are and with whom you belong? Do you know who you are and with whom you belong? You see, salvation is individual, but it's not individualistic. Because as we see in the life of Saul, a a Conversion is a call to the church. Saul knew who he was now and he knew 
where he belonged. I think we tend to think of Paul as a great individual, and indeed, somebody that writes that many letters that gets preserved and plants that many churches and takes this many journeys. Yes, he is a great individual. He was, but you know what? He also knew where he belonged. He knew with whom he belonged. He belonged with God's people. Do you? Do you know who you are and where you belong? And second, do you know what you are called to do? Now, none of us have got the exact same calling of specifically what Saul has been called to do or Barnabas. But in principle, we're all called to do two things. To speak out. To speak out about Jesus Christ. To declare the good news of the gospel. We see that in the life of Saul. Not only are we to speak out, we're also to speak up. Look at Barnabas. He speaks up for someone else. He speaks up for Saul. He builds one another up. He strengthens. He encourages. So my question is this to us all. Are you speaking out? And are you speaking up? Are you speaking out to proclaim Christ? Are you speaking up for one another? There is a time to be silent, to be sure. There's also a time to speak, to speak out and to speak up. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, this narrative account where we see your preservation of Saul, where we see your preservation of the church, and we are thankful. Father, we're thankful that you preserve your people, your church, through means, the means of grace, your word, the sacraments you have given, prayer, and the fellowship of God's people. Oh, Father, be pleased to protect us, to provide for us, and enable us, Father, to indeed speak out and declare the gospel. Help us to speak up for one another, to encourage one another through our words and through our actions. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.